from that to what's next, and I'm not going to sing a song for you at all. Although our stage is very empty, I feel like I could just dance up here and see how that goes, because lots of space up here on the stage. But um, how about I pray? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for how it changes, how it grows us, how it transforms us. We thank you for um, the story of Hosea. I've been looking at that the last couple of months and how you have taken that story and shown us how it intersects with our own story. We pray that um, today as we talk about uh, something very, very difficult and idle, the idol called money, that we would um, just come to grips with how it infiltrates so many aspects of our lives. I pray this in your name. Amen. So since I already introduced it in the prayer, um, I'll get to that in a minute. But we have, we've been doing a series on Hosea. But like I said the last few weeks, we actually have been doing like a series within a series. And we actually did uh, two weeks of dating. So it was like a series within a series within a series all at one time. And uh, we've been looking at Hosea. We started that back in August. And just if you're new with us, I'll, I'll do a quick recap on Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to Israel, and the purpose of Hosea, um, in fact, God actually asked him to marry a promiscuous woman, the only person in the Bible that I know of that was ever told by God to do that. And the reason for it was God said, marry this woman, she's going to cheat on you relentlessly, and the reason for this is because the people of Israel are cheating on me, and I want what happens to you to be an example to them of what they are doing to me. So Hosea actually marries this woman named, you recall her name? Gomer. And he marries Gomer, and things go just as God said they would. So um, we left that story, though, kind of in uh, in the middle of that book. And I wanted to do a mini-series on idolatry in our culture because I felt like since Hosea's role is to point out the idolatry of the Israelites, well, let's talk about what are some of our idols. So I've been looking at this book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods, and we kicked it off about, uh, about three weeks ago, and we looked at the idol of love first, and we spent two weeks on that, and then today we're looking at the idol of money. Now, I know as soon as I say that, idol of money, you think, I don't have any money, so how could that be an idol for me? Well, first of all, some of you guys do have money, and you know who you are. Secondly... Just because you don't have something doesn't mean it can't be an idol to you. In fact, I would say that much, many of our idols are things that we don't have yet. We, we want them. They're, they're, they're far off. For you, it might be a relationship. They're far off, but we still want them. We think we have to have those things. And so many times our idols are things that we don't have yet. And then thirdly, money is often more than just money, right? Money is, is not just money to us. Money is materialism. Money is coveting. For many of us, we see money as just the ticket to something else, right? You see money as the ticket to the next thing, or you see money as the ticket to financial security. And so for many of us, money is not just money, but it's actually much more than money. Anybody see this past week, there was a documentary on ESPN called Broke. Anybody see that? Anyone in the room? 
You guys don't watch TV anymore, I guess. You're, you're busy with other things. So you saw it. You saw the, the documentary called Broke. Here's what it's about. You'd be so surprised at how many NBA athletes, professional athletes, NFL athletes have become broke after they've made millions. In fact, the stats are staggering. Listen to this. 60% of all NBA players are broke five years after they retire. 78% of NFL players are broke after they retire three years. Got it? So way more than half in both leagues broke several years after they, they finished playing. In this documentary, they also talked about just how much uh, personal consumption has gone up in the U.S., uh, just not just with athletes but with everybody. In 1978, the Americans spent $1.5 trillion on themselves, just buying stuff. $1.5 trillion, 78. In 2008, so 30 years later, it is up to $10.25 trillion. So it's gone up 10 times in 30 years. What Americans, we spend on ourselves, just personal consumption. And so another uh, stat from this documentary um, Evander Holyfield, an old boxer you may not have heard of, but a, a boxer he used to be good. He, he built a house 52,000 square feet. My house is 2,000 square feet, maybe. So 25 times the size of my house is his house. You guys know who Charles Barkley is? Old NBA player. He lost $10 million gambling, he says. Just gambling. Just Ten million bucks. One of your heroes, Des Bryant, plays for the Cowboys. He spent $56,000 at a restaurant recently. $56,000. One night in a restaurant. Another one of your heroes. Listen, listen. Another one of your heroes, uh, Vince Young, the infamous Vince Young. He spent $30 million in three years. He's broke right now. $30 million in three years, gone. He once spent $6,000 at a TGI Fridays. How do you spend six grand at Fridays? He once, listen, listen. He once, he, he just wanted to be alone one day on a flight, and so he bought the entire flight for Southwest Airlines so he could be on the plane by himself. So he had every seat just to himself. He wanted to be alone. So he spent thousands on just that. So the question is, what would make, what would make someone spend their money in this way? And it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Listen, as I said, money is never just money. Money is always a ticket to something else. Um, I wanted to see if somebody on the front row up here has a $20 bill. Anybody have a $20 bill up here on the front row? Can I see it real quick? I'm not going to take it for very long. So let's just, here we go. All right, so I want you to um, help me with something. My name is not Tim. My name is Dave, by the way. So someone's calling me Tim over there. Um, they said, I think they were saying Tim. So everyone knows that on our money, there's a phrase. And what is that phrase? I find it so interesting that right on top of the White House, you've got two of our idols 
on one thing. You've got the money itself, then you have politics, and right above it it says, in God we trust. You ever wonder why they put that on money? Just knowing that our real idol is probably this, and our real idol is probably politics, and so we have the need to put that over top of the White House on the money to remind us who our real God is. And so here, here's the deal, though. We, we can sit here all day and say, yeah, and God we trust, but it's really this that we're trusting in for most of us, right? We're trusting in this much more than, than God himself. And so um, today I want to look at Luke chapter 19. So go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 19. Or use your app or whatever. Oh, yeah, here's your money back. I was going to hope you wouldn't notice. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 1. And so today the goal is, I don't want you to see money as just money. Money is not the real issue. 1 Timothy 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not just money itself. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. So look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This is a familiar story to you. It's the story of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little criminal. Verse 1, it says, He entered Jericho. This is Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now here's some background. Israel at this time is occupied by Rome. And they, let, they put heavy taxes on Rome. And this is how they would carry out their tax deal. They would recruit tax collectors from within the Jewish people. Those tax collectors would then become like traders collecting money for the enemy from their people, right? So, so Zacchaeus is a Jew. He's collecting money from his people, giving it to Rome. And then the tax collector is also backed up by the Roman military. So if someone refuses to give them their taxes, all Zacchaeus has to do is go say to the, to the magistrates, the people in charge, well, this guy's not cooperating, so can y'all take care of it like the mafia? And so Zacchaeus had a lot of power backing him up because of his position. And what, what these tax collectors would often do, because they had this force of military behind them, they were allowed to demand more money than what was due and they could keep the difference for themselves as an incentive. And so Zacchaeus was rich. He was, they were often the most wealthy people in that society. Tax collectors, as you can imagine, were, were hated outcasts in that society. You guys know today, the people that collect money today from us is what? The, the IRS. Now, you may not have a hatred for them like your parents do because you don't have any money yet. But just wait. Let me just give you some math here. Let's just say when you get out of college, you're making, I don't know, let's say your take-home pay is like $3,000 a month, okay, which is 36000 a year. That's pretty good take-home pay if that's your first job out of college. So 3000 a month, if you tithe on that to the church, 10%, uh, that's 300 bucks. So you're, not, you're down to 2700 now, right? Then if you're taxed on this, let's say between 15 20% about what you're looking at, so do the math. That's like 600 bucks or so per month. Now you're down to $2,100 a month. Almost a third of your money is taken just with tithing to the church and with taxes. All right? So when you see how much money is going to the government, and this is just a, 
faceless organization, the IRS. You have a sort of faceless hatred for them after a while because they, they take your money and they, they blow it on crazy things, the government does. Now imagine there's a person. There's a person. Not, it's no longer faceless. It's a person. This guy was Zacchaeus. Literally that you knew. Your people, Jewish just like you, and he, tra- he was like a traitor against your people, and he's the one who's in charge of all these other tax collectors, and he's keeping more for himself just because he can. Now imagine how much your hatred would be for that person. I mean, how much do we, we say we hate the IRS as an organization, but how much greater would your hatred be for someone like this, that you knew him, you knew who he was, there was a face to it. This was the hatred that they had for, for Zacchaeus. And the question is, what would cause someone to sell out their people for money? And the answer is idolatry. The answer is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Go to the next slide. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Coveting is the key word there. Obviously, if you want something that someone else has that you don't have, that's coveting. And Paul here calls it idolatry. He says that greed is a form of idolatry. And greed is not just the love of money, but it's also excessive anxiety about it. It's not just, oh, I love money, but it's being constantly worried about that. You ever notice how, how, how tied to um, how our emotions are so tied to our possessions and to our money. I mean, you guys can probably attest to this, but when you, when you get something new, really almost anything that you get that's new, you feel a certain emotion about that for at least a couple of days, right? Anybody here have the new iPhone 5? Anyone? He's not gonna admit, someone's going to take it from him if they, if they admit it. So, so when you first get that new thing, there's something in you that feels emotionally better for some reason for at least a couple of days, right? And it's not just that, it's not just things, but it's also for people like me, I'm more of a saver. I like to save money. And so if I put um, money in the bank, I actually feel a little bit better psychologically for a couple of days. It's the weirdest thing. In fact, on my phone, I have this, uh, I go to Extraco banks down the streets and they have this app on your phone where you can take a picture of the check and, and, and on the internet, using the app, you can deposit your check just by taking a picture of it and, and the front and the back so they know it's signed. And that can be your deposit for your check. You, don't need, you can, like, avoid going to the bank now. But for some reason, I've done it a few times that way. But what I've noticed is I just like the ritual of driving down to the bank, signing the check, and putting it in the bank. I feel better about that, Right? There's just something about that psychologically and emotionally. I feel like, okay, the money's, I know the money is in there. It didn't get hijacked in cyberspace somewhere. And so there's, our emotions are tied to these things, not just things, but to our money. And we, we feel emotions about these things. And so I think for most of us, we think of, we think of money being an idol uh, today in our culture because we're, we're so materialistic and so consumer driven. But we think of that being an issue now, but not so much back then. But the life of Zacchaeus shows us that this has always been an idol since the beginning of, of mankind. Look at verse 3, Luke chapter 19, verse 3. 
It says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. This is Zacchaeus. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in nature, in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. I want to start singing the song to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And he has, they said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So right away in this story, we see how much of an outcast someone like Zacchaeus is. But we also see how Jesus is always pursuing the outcast. We see how Jesus always goes after that guy that's really going to tick off the Pharisees. He always, he's always messing with the Pharisees, isn't he? And so the question you might have is, okay, why would some guy, why would some grown man climb a tree? I mean, if you, if you guys came on a Wednesday night here to the Outback, and you saw me and Tim up in the trees across the road here in front of the nursing home, and we're just like, hey, guys, go on in. Make yourself comfortable. We're just playing up here in the trees. I mean, if you saw a grown man in a tree, you're going to think, okay, that's a little weird. That's a bit strange. I mean, my, my five-year-old son, I would expect that, but not a 35-year-old guy. So Zacchaeus, and the same was true in that culture. It's not like guys just hung out in the trees in that culture either. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree. He does something undignified. Why? Because he wants to see Jesus. He's an outcast. Out of desperation, he wants to see who this guy is. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus singles him out, I think, because he sees, he sees someone, Jesus sees someone who's willing to be ridiculed for his name. He sees someone doing something undignified and says, I'm going to call that guy down because he is the guy who is willing to be ridiculed for the sake of my name. And the question is, are we? Are we willing to be ridiculed for the sake of Jesus' name? Are we willing to look stupid, undignified, to not fit in for the sake of Christ's name? Now, it might be in that moment that he wasn't fully, it's not like I understand that someone could say, well, he was just, he's a short dude. He wouldn't see what all the hoopla was about with Jesus. He's just trying to climb a tree and see who this guy was. That might be the case. But Jesus saw something in him, and he called that out of him. And by his grace, he, he, pursues, he pursues Zacchaeus. Now, what I want you to do um, is look at verse 8. Because I want you to see now the story is going to turn. And, and in verse 8, we're going to see how God's grace, how the grace of Christ totally changes Zacchaeus. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, when this says that it calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, what it's meaning is ethnically he's a Jew. Racially he's a Jew. But what it's saying, though, is this is the point where Zacchaeus came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
He wasn't born into it. This says here that salvation has come to him. And, and, and what's happening is, I think for most of us, we think of salvation as something that we're kind of born into. Well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm from a Christian family. See, I've always believed this. No, you're, you're, you're not born into this. You're not born into a relationship with Jesus. In the same way that Zacchaeus had to go from unbelief to belief and surrender his life to Jesus, put his faith and trust in Jesus, the same is required of you. You can't rely on your family. You can't rely on your nationality. You can't rely on anything except believing and putting your faith and trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Anything apart from that is not the correct thing to put your faith in. So I want you to see what what grace does here. Look at what grace does with Zacchaeus here. This Grace turns Zacchaeus, who was a selfish, greedy little man, it turns him into someone who's a giver. It turns him into someone who is compassionate for the poor. He has remorse for what he had done to people, how he had abused people, how he had exploited their weaknesses. And so when he's changed by the grace of Jesus, he becomes this different kind of person. And I want you to think about this. Can you imagine the response of the other Jews that, that knew Zacchaeus? Can you imagine their response to what to this change in Zacchaeus? They knew him as this selfish, greedy guy that they totally hated. He was an outcast. And then he to, he, he, he's changed by the grace of Christ. And there'd be no question that they would say, they'd have to say, there must have been a miracle that happened with this guy because we knew who he, who he used to be. We knew what this guy used to be about. And so you can imagine, you can imagine their reaction to this change. There's a quote that I want you to see on this next slide, and it's this. Because I want you to know that um, God's salvation doesn't come as a result of your obedience to him. You, you can't obey your way into the kingdom. You can't obey your way into a relationship with Christ. So what we see here is that it's not like Zacchaeus went and obeyed Jesus first, and then Jesus saved him. It's Jesus saved him, and then obedience followed. Look at this quote by Tim Keller. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. And you're going to hear me say this kind of thing a lot around here because I believe it. I think it's true. I think it's biblical. But it's also the thing I think most of us get tripped over, especially at the, at the high school age, especially here in the Bible Belt. Because you so quickly, without even realizing it, think that you can just flip a switch and go, okay, I got to get my life right. I got to start obeying the laws, the rules of being a Christian. And there's no heart change, no heart transformation by Jesus. And if you get these things reversed, that's not salvation. That's not salvation. You don't pretty yourself up. You don't change yourself in your own strength and then present yourself to Christ and say, okay, I'm ready to be used by you. I'm ready for a relationship with you. You don't, you don't change yourself, then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus so he can change you. So he can change you. And this is what Zacchaeus did. So I want to look at, at just as we close here, just two kinds of, of, of idolatry when it comes to money. 
and one might surprise you. But then there's two kinds of ways that money can become idolatrous to us. And obviously one of these had become idolatrous for Zacchaeus. And they're this. The first is the spender. This is a person who money is just a ticket to things for them. You know, they get money for one purpose so they can spend it on themselves so they can buy themselves gadgets and trinkets and just lots of lots of stupid stuff so they can make themselves happy. And they surround themselves with all this stuff. And what happens is the stuff gets worn down, gets worn out, uh, gets broken, and then it's on to the next thing. And so money for them is just a ticket to things, which they use those things to satisfy themselves, to make themselves feel happy. But it's this never-ending cycle that they're on. And in that sense, money is idolatrous, but it's not just money, but it's materialism. It's consumerism. Maybe they spend it on experiences, not just things, but just going out, having a good time, and that's what the, their money is put towards. So this, this is the spender. Then there's the saver. Now, you might think, well, the saver, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, yeah, you are, kind of. But how can, how can someone who just saves a lot, how can that person be looking at money as an idol? Well, here's how. I can tell you personally, because this is, this is my struggle. My wife's here. She can attest that, where is she? Where's my wife? She's here somewhere over here. So I, I struggle with this, don't I? The saving. Um, is I like to save. Um, my parents were not wealthy. Not, my dad was like a railroad worker. My mom was a teacher in a private Christian school. They don't make a lot of money. And so I was taught as a kid, like, hang on to your money, be a saver, be frugal, um, budget for things, save your own money. I had to uh, pay for my own car when I was 19 years old. My parents didn't put one dime towards a car for me. So I saved $5,000 when I was 19. Every dime of that went to a car. Every dime of it, right? And it was tough. And so I learned as a kid, like, I've got to save, I've got to scrap, I've got to do everything I can to save money. But here's how even saving money can become idolatrous because what I start to do with it, I don't want to be generous with it because it's mine. I don't want to give to those in need because I, I worked hard for that money. That's, that's my money. And what I do is my security, my, my feeling of financial security is hinging on what's in the bank account. And so if we have a lot of bills to pay, Courtney can attest to this, I start getting all stressed out. I kind of get quiet for a couple of days. She's like, what are you thinking about? I'm like, oh, nothing. Okay, it's about the money thing, right? And so that's my idolatry. That's my idolatry. So there are two ways this can happen. But there's a third thing you can do with money, and it's this. You can give it. Most of you might think, well, I mean, there's only two options with money, right? It's just spending and saving. Spending and saving. Well, there's a third way, and it's give. Yeah, save money. That's good. That's biblical. But you do it so that you can be generous. You do it so that you can bless people. There's a third way, and it's to give. Now, I want you to look at um, one last verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And I think all this has to come back to the gospel as we bring it there every time we talk about this. Because you and I just can't we can't just deal with idolatry by looking at the service and saying, okay, I got I to gotta be better with money. I got to make sure that I'm better about money because that's just dealing with the surface idol. There's some idols beneath that that have to be addressed at a heart level, and it's dealt with through faith in Jesus. 
And look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So God, Jesus, stepped out of his place of privilege with his Father, and he made himself poor. He became like one of us, made himself poor, so that you and I could be rich spiritually. And this is not teaching prosperity gospel of, oh, there's going to be a material blessing for you. Because if you see throughout, throughout history, sometimes the blessing for many of the disciples was death. It was, okay, you get to get killed for Jesus. That doesn't sound too exciting. But at the same time, the blessing in that was God strengthened them through that. Gave them the strength to get through those things. And so I don't want you to leave this morning and just say, okay, I've got to stop idolizing money. I've got to stop idolizing materialism and consumerism. I want you to get this today, is that for you to really get this, Jesus has to become greater for you in order for money to become less. I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, have you guys break off in a minute. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for... um, just the power that your word contains. We thank you for the way that um, you have shown us what true worship looks like through your word. We thank you for that. We thank you for uh, just the constant reminder that we have uh, to relinquish these idols and to turn to you, to walk in the spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We thank you for that. We pray all this in your name. Amen.